Grove. A special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Holland. I see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Episode 70 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is a tribute to three NHL and WHA players who passed away recently. They are Tom Hawkeye Webster, Pat Whitey Stapleton, and John Tank Hughes. We begin with a look back at the remarkable career of Tom Webster. The all-time leading Whaler goal scorer is next, a member of Team Canada 74, three-time WHA All-Star, number eight, Tom Webster. Goes to Newell, to Niekamp at his own line, banks it off the boards now to Mowat. He dumps it into the Whaler zone, flagged down by Lee in the left wing corner. Good pass to Webster at his own line. Webster's out with a burst of speed. Center ice over the line. Webster dancing in for a shot. He scores! Is he something else? It's 5-4. Time of the goal will be 4 minutes, 10 seconds. Tommy Webster. Personally, Tom was my favorite Whaler in the early days of the franchise. In fact, my very first trip to the Whalers gift store in 1975 with my dad and my brother. I purchased a Whalers number eight replica sweater in honor of Tom Webster. Tom was the Whalers' first star, scoring 52 goals to lead the Whalers to the WHA championship in 1973. Although Tom had been a 30-goal scorer with the Detroit Red Wings, he was a high-risk signing for the Whalers due to severe back injuries that limited him to just 12 games with the California Golden Seals in 71-72. Here are Tom's reflections on that first season from the Whalers 1973 highlight film. I uh, happened to pick up my 50th goal. It's, uh, it's a nice feeling right now. It's, uh, it's nice to get, I guess, since we won first place and uh, we are ended up in first place in the league. But I have to uh, give a lot of credit to my centerman, Terry Caffrey who I've been playing with as a regular for most of the season, and my left winger, Britt Selby, who's helped me out quite a bit. Yeah, I think it all just boils down to the one word, just work. You have to work together when you're out on the ice, especially when you're on with a line. You're, as, as we were said, with my centerman, my left winger, we were set throughout most of the year, and we just worked together and worked and worked hard at it so that we knew what we were supposed to do once we got out on the ice and just kept working at it until the coach had confidence in us, and we had confidence in ourselves to go out and do the best that we could. I'm awful proud to be a member of the WHA that uh, I'm glad that I made the jump to come to Boston because uh, it is such a great hockey town. And, uh, of course, they support the team. The people have been very, very patient with our hockey club. Fellow WHA original Andre Lacroix remembers Tom's goal-scoring talents. Tommy Webster, he was like Lynn Stoughton, a natural goal scorer. I mean, he's the type of guy that I think that if I would have played with someone like him all my career, I would have probably won more scoring title, <laughs> to be honest with you. Right. Because 
he's the type of guy that knew he, he knew the center had to get the puck for him to score goals because his job was to skate and get to the open, get the puck, and play the net, and he knew how to do that. Most goal scorers, they depend on their center to score goals, and that's what Tommy did. Tommy was so good at getting open, and the thing is, he was deceiving because when you watch him, you watch him like he's, he's, like he's standing around doing nothing, and it's just because he's looking at the game, he's looking to see where the other teams are, and then he opens himself up thinking the right way, thinking my settlement's going to give me the puck if I'm open, so I better open up. So at the last second, when nobody was looking, you would get in the open and just go, and then you give him the puck, and you knew 9 out of 10 the puck was in the net. I mean, he was just a complete, complete natural goal scorer. Tied up and trot, picked off now by Bernier. Bernier up with Mark Tridovic, two on two. At the Soviet blue line, a drop pass, racing in. It's Webster, he shoots the score! Tom Webster! As noted, Tom was beset by back injuries throughout his WHA career, but he scored 220 goals in just 352 games and added 28 more in 43 playoff games. Now, based on 80 games, Tom averaged over 50 goals per season in the WHA. Tom went on to enjoy a remarkable coaching career winning championships in the CHL with Tulsa and the AHL with Adirondack and the OHL with Windsor. He also coached three seasons as the head coach as the Los Angeles Kings when his assistant for numerous teams as well. He later became a scout with the Calgary Flames and ended his hockey career as one of the most respected men in the game. Whalers founder and eventual WHA president Howard Baldwin recalls Tom Webster's contributions to the Whalers franchise. Um, nothing but great thoughts and remembered so clearly the day we actually signed him and the picture taken with Jack Kelly, who was a master mastermind behind the franchise, and Carol Webster and Tommy. And it, what struck me about Tommy was he was just such an engaging young fella. But <laughs> His glasses, I, he was, it looked to me anyway when we signed him that he was borderline blind. <laughs> He's always squinting, and he had the thick glasses. And, uh, and, but he was one of what I call the core of that first-year team. And um, terrific guy, and, and stayed with us right till um, the year before the end, of, right before the merger. And, right. Uh, and had an incredible career for us. Um, natural scorer, great shot, great personality, and uh, he, he was as much a part of the history of the Whalers as anybody. Right, and it's unfortunate with Tom, as great of a career as he had, it was short-circuited by persistent back injuries. Uh, it, particularly, I remember that last season he played 77-78, first 20 games of the year, the house had just arrived. He played on the right side with Gordy in the middle and Mark at the left. He had 15 goals in 20 games and was looking to maybe have a, a 60-goal season, but the back injuries finally were too much to overcome. Yeah, it was so too bad because that would have been an amazing line if it was able to go through the year. Um, and you're right. He, you know, what you remember about Tommy in terms of 
you know, his inability to play longer was it was because of the back. I mean, he really had a bad back. I remember with Jack. In fact, I spoke to Jack Kelly yesterday, and we were talking about Tommy and how how severe his back injury was. Uh, it's amazing. Frankly, he did what he did while he did it. Right. Howard, I want to finally ask you, as it relates to Tom, but not only Tom Webster, but that entire initial group of WHA and Whalers originals, guys who came over and took big risks of their career because they could have easily or probably would have been blackballed had they looked to get back to the NHL, had the league folded or failed early. Uh, however, in talking to Andre Lacroix recently, you know, he had mentioned how the players, even the rival players, there, were, there was a, uh, a spirit decor, I guess, with them. They were rivals that compete during the games, but they're all in this together. And I want to talk about, I guess, Tom and that, that initial crew of whalers, particularly, and that camaraderie that exists today, because you and those players still stay in consistent contact. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. The history of the franchise, certainly the 18 years that I was a part of it, you had many wonderful players come in. You had two groups. The first year group was really special. And then, you know, 85, 86. But in that first year group, you know, for certainly for the Whalers, but for the rest of the league, they all took a chance. Now, some of the guys that were coming out of the AHL, I wouldn't kid you. They had that was for them. Not so risky, but for guys like Tommy and Dory and Selwood and Ricky Lee and and uh, Plo, um, you know, for Jack Kelly, for many of them, it was a big risk because once you step over that line, the NHL then was a very vindictive group of guys, ownership. And you knew with Harold Ballard running the Maple Leafs, you know, Lee Dorian Selwood would never have a chance to have gone back there because right. of the way Harold operated. So, so, and Andre's right. He took a chance too. Um, these guys really were the catalyst. Every player today should give these guys some little piece of their check for those guys in the WHA the first couple of years because it changed all the rules of the game. Don't kid yourself. And I don't mean the rules on the ice. I mean the, mm -hmm. the way that the, the way the sport was run and managed would change because of the WHA. And, and in a positive way, it was changed. Right. Well, that's a podcast as well for a whole nother day because we could take about two hours talking <laughs> about <laughs> your role. You and, of course, <laughs> of course, that's uh, captured in your outstanding book as well. The fans can still purchase online. But the uh, I want to say thanks, Howard. Of course, uh, we've known each other for a long time. And, of course, I always appreciate the fact that you remain loyal to that first group of whalers and remain true to your WHA colors all these years later. We appreciate the time talking about Tom Webster. Well, we're glad to have the opportunity to do it. We should thank you, Mark. Um, you 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 are able to keep everybody together in this whaler history because of your passion for it, and we so dearly need that. So I hope you never let the flame go out. I won't. I wouldn't have had a career without the whalers, and the whalers wouldn't have existed without the WHA. So I, I'm always grateful. <laughs> and uh, kept me yeah, WHA kept me occupied during those adolescent years as well. So, but uh, again, Howard, Good. thanks so much. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Good deal, Mark. Thanks a lot. Another of professional hockey's all-time great defensemen playing in his fourth WHA All-Star game.
from the Indianapolis Racers, number 12, Pat Stapleton. Pappen picks it up, Stapleton takes the shot, scores! Stapleton at the point, a long shot and a goal! For the board's far side, Stapleton fires, goal! the Boston Territory, centering pass to Stapleton, he plays the shot, goal! Delivering it to the left point, the drive by Stapleton, score! Torres trying to center that puck as he rolls it out. He's got Stapleton to drive. It's into the net. Makita centers, and Stapleton scores. Pat Stapleton played eight seasons with the Chicago Blackhawks and was a second-team NHL All-Star three times in 66, 71, and 72. 1969, his 50th, sits at the new NHL record for assists in a season by a defenseman. Of course, Bob Ewer broke that the following season. Stapleton was a member of Team Canada at the Summit Series in 72. And during this tournament, he was a plus six, and he often paired with Blackhawks teammate Bill White in what was probably the most reliable defensive pairing for Team Canada. In 1973, Stapleton jumped from the NHL and signed a five-year deal with the Chicago Cougars of the WHA, where he became player coach. And what a first year it was for Pat as he was a first-team league all-star, was named the Defenseman of the Year, and the Cougars stunned the hockey world by reaching the WHA Finals before ultimately losing to the Houston Arrows. Now, Stapleton once again represented Canada in 1974 in the Summit Series against the Soviets, and this time he was team captain. He was again player coach of the Cougars in 74-75, but the team struggled financially in December of 74 he and teammates Dave Dryden and Ralph Backstrom bought the Trouble franchise, becoming player owners. But the Cougars folded after that season, and Stapleton was claimed by the Indianapolis Racers, where he had two outstanding seasons. It was named the second-team All-Star in 1976. The financially troubled Racers refused to honor his contract in 1977. Stapleton then joined the Cincinnati Stingers, where he played one final season in 77-78. Now, the next year, he had the distinction of being Wayne Gretzky's first pro coach with the Indianapolis Racers, where he coached both Gretzky and Mark Messier before the team folded in 1978. Now, similar to J.C. Tremblay, had Pat not jumped at WHA, he may be in the Hockey Hall of Fame today. Nonetheless, Pat certainly has the respect of all who knew him. He was a player who truly appreciated the history of the game and his place in its legacy. Boston Bruins center Fred Stanfield played against Pat in many classic Chicago-Boston battles in the 1970s, and he was also a teammate of Pat's with the Chicago Blackhawks. Well, Pat Stapleton was a steady, steady defenseman, probably the shortest defenseman in the whole league, but he, he played like he was six foot two, so I had a lot of respect for him. And he was a good teammate, and I feel bad about his passing. Andre Lacroix was teammates of Pat Stapleton's in 1971-72 with the Chicago Blackhawks. He was also a teammate of Pat's in 1974 Summit Series against the Soviets. Well, you know, besides being just a great guy, the thing with Pat Stapleton, when I first got to Chicago, he was one of the first players that came to me and welcomed me and said to me, said, Andre, if you need anything, just let me know. I'll be happy to help you, mm -hmm. you know. And on the ice, 
if you watch Pat Stapleton plays, he was not the fastest skater. He was, I think, if it's possible, I think he was shorter than I am, you know. <laughs> but he had so much skills, Mark. He knew what the player with the puck was going to do before he did it, before the player made the play. He was always in the right place at the right time. He was so smart with the puck. Defensively, he was so good. You know, and, he, and you couldn't ask for a better teammate. He was the best teammate. He was, to me, he was a superstar in a very, very quiet way. Mm-hmm. He didn't look for publicity. He just went out there, wanted to do his job, and do his job so well, to be honest with you. And he, he, he got a lot of ice time. He was killing penalties on defense, playing the power play, playing a regular shift. But you never knew he was getting that much ice time because he never got tired because he knew how to pace himself and he played the game the right way. Veteran WHA defenseman Jerry Rollins played against Pat Stapleton on numerous occasions in the WHA. He was also coached by Pat with the Racers in 1978. And I spoke with Jerry about Pat's coaching during that tumultuous 1978 campaign where the team was out of money almost immediately, and the ownership was, to say the least, non-supportive. You know, it, it was a it was a challenging time, and you know, unbeknownst to all, all of us, what was interesting is so many of us had just signed with Indianapolis that summer. Uh, about a half dozen of us signed with Indianapolis to go play there, and of course, the several years prior, I had played against Whitey. Um, when I was in both um, Toronto and Phoenix. And so I followed his career as a Blackhawk. Then I played against him. And I was always, as a player, I was amazed at his vision of the ice, his control, even, you know, in his, uh, you know, in those days, advanced age as a player, he still controlled every game he was in when he was a player. And I, you know, it's always interesting when you're playing against somebody, you always wonder, I wonder what they think of me. Right. <laughs> right. And so several, you know, fast forward several years later, you know, Pat actually reached out and uh, I was with Detroit and they actually bought my contract from the Detroit Red Wings. Cause I was, floundering in their system and he specifically sought me out and I guess even though Pat was a very compact player and you know controlled the game and very stocky I guess he had a thing for trying to make something out of tall gangly defensemen who perhaps had played tougher roles and so Prior to me, he'd done it with in Indianapolis with Brian Baltimore and mm-hmm. Daryl Maggs, who were very good players that Whitey really developed. So he brought me to camp, and he let me know right away. He said, Jerry, I think you're a lot better player than um, you've been allowed to play in the pros, and I don't want you here just to fight. And he said, I want to let you know right away you're going to be the right right defenseman on the power play. And I was like, wow. wow, this is interesting. So I'm on the power play with Wayne Gretzky. I think uh, Blaine Stoughton. I can't remember who the other person was. And Kevin Morrison, of course, they were all stars. And um, But he just showed confidence in me. He was a consummate teacher. He was a gentleman. 
he had an amazing sense of humor. And although it was a short time, because I actually got injured uh, early in the year, tore knee ligaments, but my time with him was uh, appreciated. Uh, I really appreciated the confidence he showed in me. And I think he did that with a lot of players. I have a, an old friend that he did the same thing with. He took Kim Claxon when Kim first joined Indianapolis back in the day. And Kim was always known as a brawler, but mm-hmm. Pat actually developed him into a guy that could play a sh- play every shift. Right. And it was because of Pat that I think Kim, Kim credited with showing confidence in him and, uh, you know, teaching. So Good man, uh, you know, definitely one of those guys that grew up in the farm that had those farmers' hardworking values, but also an amazing sense of humor. Which he would have needed in his situation, too, because that was tough for him. That was pretty much the end of Pat in the pro ranks, and trying to keep that situation from falling apart. It's such a, you look back at the Indianapolis Racers team from that year, it's such a unique team in hockey history. Who would have known as you watched that team that the top two scorers in the history of hockey would have played on that roster as well as the leading scorer in the NHL the next year in Blaine Stoughton. Of course, talking about Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier as well, but it's uh, unfortunately, as you noted, and we talked about in the podcast previously, it all came unraveled, but for Pat Stapleton in particular, bringing players in and committing to it, then having it all fall apart had to be uh, very trying for him. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think he got sold the bill of goods as did we all by the owner there whose name shall remain unmentioned. <laughs> but I'll never forget, I'm trying to remember the name of the circle. We, we had a team meeting called and we didn't know anything that was going on, of course, financially. And, you know, Again, we had a talented team, but it was just thrown together. So a lot of really good players. I mean, if I look at the roster, I go, wow, you know, it, it would have been, could have been a contender, as, as we all say, mm-hmm. right? Right. But um, I remember going into this hotel, and there's a circle in Indianapolis, kind of an old historic circle, and there's a hotel there that was the team hotel, and we go up. And the owner held a meeting, and I'll never forget the meeting, and – I hope I'm not taking poetic license, but the Pat's up there with him and whoever the general manager, whoever was. And then the owner gets up there and he says, you know, I could keep this team alive, but I'd have to sell a couple of my paintings to do so. So I've decided to fold the team. And, you know, somewhat of an insensitive remark. And what I remember of this guy is, Again, I'm not going to mention his name, but he wasn't a very tall guy. And so we get on the elevator and I'm going down on the elevator and it's the first time in my life. I'm not, I'm not a mean person, but it's the first time in my life. I thought I could kill this guy right now. And, (laughs) and in, 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 in this elevator and no one will ever know, (laughs) but yeah, he just disrupted so many people's lives and you know, why, he signed all these players and then discarded it, discarded the team, you know, 20 some games into the season was beyond me. I'm sure it made him money financially in some way, but it was so inappropriate on so many levels. And so the team disbanded, you know, it went. And I think Pat, I think it really, really hurt Pat. I remember him coming to the dressing room 
the next day as we're getting all of our stuff and picking it up and how warm he was to all the players and apologizing. And, you know, no one in any way felt it was his issue. We all knew where the problem lay. And, uh, but again, I think he took it personally and I think it, it, you know, kind of disturbed him after all the shenanigans going on in the WHA with foldings. But that was one of the worst I ever saw in terms of, you know, how an owner did it. We all understood business and, you know, companies go in and out of business every day, but it was totally inappropriate. Whitey Stapleton's impact extended beyond hockey. As we learned in this 2019 interview with Ron McLean, on Rogers' hometown hockey. So here's Carl Dixon, who ended up singing lead for the Guess Who, and Burton yeah. Cummings took a break, and it was because of you, Whitey. He says, I just wish everyone reading, this is Carl Dixon's story, I wish everyone reading this could have a Pat Stapleton arrive in their life at a time when they are afraid and uncertain of which is the way. You saved him in, in a different way. He got through a car accident, and but he got through uh, deciding to give up music, and you talked him out of it. Well, it's just like anybody else sometimes they just need a, somebody to hold their hand and say go for it right and he did carl did and what a wonderful story to bounce back the way he did and uh, you know he's an inspiration to all of us and uh, you know i remember talking to him in australia when he was in a coma uh, you know and we remain friends one post note on whitey i know i had in my calendar a reminder to call whitey a few weeks uh, ago and Put it off, figuring I'd have an opportunity to talk to him sometime this month. And, of course, I did not make that call, and now it's too late. And what a privilege it would have been to have him share his story with all of you. So I guess all I can do now is say, rest in peace, Pat Stapleton. A very aggressive defenseman and a solid blue line performer. From the Cincinnati Stingers, number 10, John Hughes. Hard-hitting PEI native John Hughes was a member of the powerful Toronto Marlboros teams of the early 1970s and went on to an excellent and well-traveled WHA career with Phoenix, Cincinnati, Houston, Indianapolis, and finally Edmonton. John was chosen to the WHA's midseason All-Star team in 1977 and 1979. Injuries took their toll on John in his brief NHL stay, and he concluded his career coincidentally with Tom Webster's Springfield Indians in 1981-82. Andre Lacroix, a teammate of John's in Houston, and Jerry Rollins, who played with John in Indianapolis, recall the rock-solid D-man they called Tank. John was so tough but clean. John used what type of defenseman that you want on your team doesn't matter what situation is on the ice. You know you could de- you knew you could depend on him. You know if you wanted to play physical, you could have played physical with anybody if they wanted to. But his main goal was always to prevent the goal, the puck from getting into the net. Mm-hmm. And defensively, he was as good as anybody I played with. But wow. also, he's another guy like Pat Stapleton. So quiet, you don't even notice him. Mm-hmm. You know, but he didn't make too many mistakes. I'll tell you, he was so good that 
uh, the coach never hesitated to put him on the ice because he knew he was safe with John on the ice. So, John, um, my my first recollection of him was um, watching him play in the Memorial Cup. I was going to be a draft choice the next year, so my agent took a bunch of his players down, and I remember watching him play and being impressed with – I actually saw him on the ice and picked him out and went, that guy's good. I mean, he would stay at home. He could play the game anyway. You know, he had the nickname Tank for a reason. He was in, the guy was indestructible. It was like running into two people I remember in professional hockey running into that it hurt when you hit them. And one was him and one was Paul Holmgren. And those two guys, Paul was quite a bit bigger, but they were built uh, and, and, and very solid. So I watched him there and then. My father at the time, uh, Cincinnati, he was drafted by, but they were not going to go into business until the following year, I think, 76. And so my father was player personnel director, I think, and GM with Phoenix. And so he picked up both he and uh, Sobchak, who were two super talented players. And so I'd see them when they came in. I was playing junior in Winnipeg. I'd see them when they came to town. I went down to their kind of end of year banquet and got to know John a bit. And what, what I remember of him at that time is a, his teammates loved him. He was uh, a funny guy. He was a happy guy. He was quick witted, always had everybody's back. And then I'll go forward to, you know, playing against him the next couple of years in the WHA is, he was not a guy to be messed with. He never went looking for trouble, but if it occurred, he was the wrong guy to, to, to pick on. Mm-hmm. Just not a good guy. Um, fast forward to, you know, again in Indianapolis, he was a, uh, so 77, yeah, that was the year I was in Phoenix. He made the all-star team and it was well-deserved. I mean, he had just an amazing year. And he was one of those people that in hockey, without all of the commotion, the folding of the teams in the WHA and the NHL, probably would have had a 20-year career. He was that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He could have played forever, but just with all the you know businesses going out of business in both the WHA and NHL, I think it shortened his career. But beloved by teammates, a guy you didn't want to mess with, he could play any part of any in the game, penalty kill, power play, you know, steady playing, and just a fun guy to hang out with. Well, Jerry, uh, as always, we really appreciate your in-depth perspective. I learned a lot uh, about both individuals by hearing that. Of course, our audience did as well. So uh, I know this is an unsettling time in the world in general. I hope you're doing well. And uh, on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to thank you again for extending a very, uh, a very nice tribute to uh, two uh, very classy guys who will definitely be missed. And thanks so much for contributing to the show today. And Mark, thanks to you for uh, continuing this legacy and for being a part of this and forming this community. You really do help me connect with a lot of the guys. You mentioned Andy Lacroix and others that, I lost touch with that you've reconnected us through the year. So I, I sincerely appreciate you doing that. 
Well, thanks, Jerry. We'll we'll keep it going. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jerry. Take care, day. brother. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please contact me at prohockeyalumni.org or via social media at ProHockeyAlumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support.